You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, does anyone happen to know or recognize my man Charles? He is going to be up on the screen uh, back here behind me. Uh, Anybody know that guy right there? Uh, He was born on March the 3rd, 1882 in a small town in northern Italy. And uh, Charles is not what you would call a model citizen. He's not that guy, all right? So even by the time he got into his teenage years, some of those criminal type of tendencies uh, began to surface. He was stealing from his parents. He was stealing from uh, even the priest in his local sort of parish there in northern Italy. And at 21, he boards a boat. He goes to Boston. And there he bounces around in multiple places. But wherever he was, he's finding trouble there. And he was in and out of jail a few times. And that's when he had his big breakthrough. Uh, he, he found the way through life. And uh, his breakthrough uh, came when he found a way to make money through something called international reply coupons. That, that's, that was his ticket. This is what he found. He learned essentially how to buy and sell these coupons at the same time in two different markets. Okay, so just you can picture how the scheme might go. Uh, if uh, I bought a stamp in Italy for 30 cents, and at the same time I bought that stamp there, I could sell it, the same exact stamp at the same exact time in America for 32 cents. Well, if I could do enough of that, I might have something to sort of work with, right? So th- this is what he found, uh, how to buy and sell these stamps in two different markets at the same time. And it would have all have gone well for him if he would have just sort of stayed right there working that plan for himself and doing the thing. It probably would have been okay. You would not have heard of Charles if that were the case. But he didn't do that. He wanted to go big with this thing. So he created an investment company. And here was the pitch that Charles made to people. Okay, just imagine that guy right there. He comes up to you and this is his pitch to you. You give me all your money. I like all your money. And here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to give you a 50% return in 90 days. You give me all your money, 50% return, 90 days. That, that was his pitch. Now, you, the astute investor, would of course ask Charles, how in the world are you going to do that? How? And he's going to look back at you, that guy right there, and he's going to say, I have found like the silver bullet. I am buying these IRCs in a way that no one else can. No one else knows how. I've got like the thing working with IRCs. And so people, after he made that pitch, started shoveling their cash uh, toward Charles. But what no one knew is that he wasn't buying and selling IRCs. He was using your money as a new investor to pay off the, the crazy absurd returns that he had promised to the old investors. Right? That, that's, that's the plan he was working. And as you might guess, uh, it went great for everyone until he didn't have enough money coming in from new investors to pay those old investors. And that's the moment when everyone realized they had bought a lie. Now, you might have guessed Charles's last name. It's Charles Ponzi. That's Charles's last name. And uh, that Ponzi scheme that Charles enacted right then, the, the originator right here, right? That Ponzi scheme swindled $220 million in kind of today's currency, $220 million from thousands of people, trusting people around Boston. That's what happened with Charles. Now, Charles Ponzi and his protege, Bernie Madoff, right? Uh, they have taught us a really important lesson in life. And here's the lesson. Promises can be too good to be true. 
You've heard that phrase, right? Promises can be too good to be true. Anytime someone comes up to you and says, give me all your money. I'm going to give you 50% return in 90 days. Don't do it, right? The, the promise is too good to be true. Charles taught us that. Politicians have taught us that promises are too good to be true or can be too good to be true. It, you know, it's interesting. Many campaigns are really built on these types of promises. Promises that a person has no intent of fulfilling and, and they know they can't do it even if they wanted to. They, they couldn't do it. Right? Politicians have taught us that promises can be too good to be true. You've taught yourself that promises can be too good to be true. Right? I mean, a month ago, we had donuts here, and you're like, I'm never going to eat a donut again. And then this month rolls around, right? And you're like, that chocolate one looks so good. It looks so good, right? We have taught ourselves that there's no one in your life who has lied to you more, who has broken more promises to you than you, Right? So, so it's not just a Charles thing who has taught us this. It's not just politicians. We have taught ourselves this. We know that when promises are too good to be true, they aren't. Life has taught us that, uh, right? Wisdom shows us this. We all know this. And that leads to the central question I, I want you to wrestle with this morning. And here's the question. Should we ever trust promises that sound too good to be true? Should you ever do that? Should you ever trust a promise that is too good to be true? Is there ever a moment? Is there ever a, a time when you should trust a promise like that? Now to get to the answer to that question, we're going to have to do some work in Genesis. So I want to show you two things that we are learning uh, in the life of Abraham. One's going to be kind of more globally in Abraham's life. And then the last one is going to be right here in the text uh, that you just heard read. So here are the two things I want you to see about God. They get us to the answer to that question. Should we ever trust a promise that sounds too good to be true? Two things to, to see about God. Here's the first. We have a God who makes promises. Okay, that is the God you have. This is what the Bible is doing. It is God making promises to his people. Now, this takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham and he makes amazing promises to Abraham. Right? He makes these six massive promises. And we condense down those six promises into three promises uh, that come out of Genesis 12. Here's essentially the promises God is making, uh, is making to Abraham. He's saying, Abraham, I am going to bless you. Okay, there's big promise number one. I'm going to bless you. Here's promise two. Abraham, I'm going to give you a place. That place throughout the Old Testament is called the promised land. He's promising Abraham a place. And then thirdly, he's coming to Abraham and saying, Abraham, I will give you a people. Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. P peoples, Abraham. Nations, Abraham. They're coming from you. Now, it's that last promise of a people that I just want to sort of put a magnifying glass on and think about with you. Th that is a crazy promise. And what makes the promise of a people coming from Abraham is the way we're introduced to Abraham. This takes us back to Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, here's, here's how we're introduced to this man, Abraham. Starting in verse 27, the text says, Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Now to verse 29 in Genesis 11. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. Now Sarai was barren. This is verse 30. Listen to how we're introduced to Abraham and Sarah. Now Sarai was born, or now Sarai was barren. She had no child. That, that's how we're introduced to Abraham. 
childless Abraham. Now, Abram means exalted father. Okay, later on, it's changed from Abram to Abraham. That means the exalted father of many. And we've laughed about this, but the only thing worse than being named exalted father when you have no kids is to be named, your name to be changed to exalted father of many and still have no kids, right? I mean, that, it's just irony, right? If I'm Abraham, I'm like, God, are you serious? What, what are you doing here? But, but God makes these absurd promises. He comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, from you, peoples are going to come. Nations are going to come. He even has Abraham look up at the stars. And he's like, Abraham, count those stars for me. That's how many descendants. And then he has him look at the sand and the seashore. And he says, count those uh, grains of sand for me, Abraham. That's how many descendants are coming your way, Abraham. Part of what we're finding in this story with Abraham is a God who makes promises to Abraham that are too good to be true. They are too good to be true. And these promises that start crazy get even crazier, right? I mean, they just get even more absurd and more ridiculous. So in Genesis 12, Abraham is 75. He's about a decade older than Sarah, his wife, who's about 65. So uh, there's 75 and 65. Now, seven or eight years later, God comes to Abraham and uh, Sarah and he, uh, he re-sort of states the promise. He makes the promise again in Genesis 15. He says, hey, uh, roughly 85-year-old Abraham, I just want you to know it's going to happen. Uh, roughly 75-year-old Sarah, hey, I just want you to know it, it's, it's on the way. A peoples, nations, like more numerous than stars, more numerous than the sand of the seashore. Then you get to Genesis 17. It's been 24 years since that original promise. Abraham is now 99. Sarah is now 89. And in Genesis 17, here's what we read. God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. It's like, really, God? Because I, I don't know. I mean, you're talking like it's past tense. I don't know any of these nations yet, uh, God. Hey, he goes on in verse 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. 99-year-old Abraham, exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations. And kings shall come from you, Abram. Verses 15 and 16. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai. But Sarah should be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know any 90-year-old ladies having babies. Do you? I mean, I, I don't know of those stories. It just, these stories don't happen. 100-year-old men and 90-year-old ladies do not have kids. Those days are sort of in the rearview mirror of their life, right? Those days have come and those days have gone. It's, not, it's just, it's absurd. It's not possible. And Abraham somewhere deep down feels the absurdity of it because in verse 17 of Genesis 17, here's what we read. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. That's how absurd this promise is. He fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Right? If, if I'm Abraham's friend, just you, you picture the scene, you're running with Abraham and Sarah back in the day of Genesis 17. 
And they tell you this. Um, I think you would sit them down and you would be like um, Abraham and Sarah. Uh, do, is, is the last name of your God Ponzi? Is that his last name? I mean, th this sounds ridiculous. Th this sounds so absurd. Th this, this can't happen. It doesn't happen. It's not even, it's not even possible for a 90-year-old lady then or now to, to have a kid. Th this, is, this is ridiculous, Abraham and Sarah. But what we find in the scriptures is a God who makes ridiculous promises. Promises that are too good to be true. This is what he's doing to Abraham. He's making to Abraham a promise that is too good to be true. Now, here's what I want to say to you. If you are in Christ, God is making promises to you that are too good to be true. Not just to Abraham. God is making promises to you that are too good to be true. And these promises that God is making to Abraham are meant to be seen through. They're like the appetizers of God's promises. He wants you to see through these to the main course of his promises to all of his people forever. He, he wants you to see he is making absurd, ridiculous, too good to be true promises to his people. Can, can we just have a few minutes this morning to rehearse some of these promises? Now, I'm just going to do a few. We could, we could, this could be sermons of content here, but let me just give you a few of the promises that God makes to his people. Promise number one, there is no condemnation left. Friend, if you're in Christ, this promise is true of you. Romans 8, 1. Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. It just doesn't exist anymore. It is all gone. There's no condemnation left. If I could open your heart and pry down to the deepest places of it, here is what I would find in virtually every heart in this room. I would find insecurity there. What does God really think about me? That, that question deep down is percolating in virtually every human heart. What, what does God think about me? With all that I have done and left undone, surely deep down God hates me, right? Surely deep down God is displeased with me. Surely deep down God doesn't want anything to do with me. And to all of that insecurity, Paul shouts, no condemnation. There's none left. God didn't have any more left in his heart because it's all been poured out onto the shoulders of his beloved son, Jesus. There's no condemnation. Now, let me just anticipate someone in the room saying, but Paul, do you know what I've done? Do you know how long I've been a porn addict? And Paul says, no condemnation. Do you know the story of my unfaithfulness, uh, Paul? There's no condemnation. Do you know all of my crimes against God, Paul? No condemnation. Uh, years ago, a couple um, asked to meet with me, and uh, we did, and they told me the story going back to high school. Uh, they were dating in high school. Uh, they eventually got married, but this was back at them dating in high school, and uh, she got pregnant. And then they went on to tell me what they called the gruesome story of their abortion. Uh, he told about encouraging her toward an abortion, toward getting one. Um, she told the story of her walking, uh, driving by herself, walking into this clinic, walking out, and just the shame and the despair she's feeling. Uh, they talked about uh, the guilt and the remorse the heartache that they had felt every day since then. And um, it, it was, 
It, it was actually an amazing moment with them. I, I'm just watching them pour their heart out to the Lord in confession, in repentance, just through tears. It, it, was, it, was a, it was a sweet moment. And at the end of that meeting, I asked them, if, if Jesus were sitting here around this table with us right now, what, what do you think he would say to you? And um, they said, I, I, don't, I don't know what he would say. And uh, I, I had this just amazing moment of looking at them and saying, you know, I, I think after hearing your heart poured out to him, after hearing your confession, your repentance, just your pleading heart with him, I think he would look at you and say, what abortion are we talking about? What, what abortion? This is now so far gone. This no longer affects the way we're looking at each other. This no longer, it has no bearing in how I'm relating to you. It has no bearing in the way that I feel about you. I love you. That's how I feel about you. What abortion? This is what Paul is saying here. There's no condemnation left in the heart of God. If you are wondering today, does God really love me? Let this promise reconvince your heart today. He does. There is no condemnation left for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. Jesus got it all for you. He took it all for you. There's no condemnation left. How about this promise? Just see the Lord looking at you today and saying this to you. <coughs> My plan. You just fill in your name. My, my plan, Rodney, for your life is invincible. My plan for your life, your particular life, it is an invincible plan. Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, here is the point Paul is making in this verse. He's, his point in this text is to, to look at a, a church and to remind these people who are in Christ uh, of this true thing. That there is now, because you're in Christ, no person, no evil, no tragedy, no sin done by you or against you that can block God's plan for you. That's what he's telling these people. God is for you. Who cares what's against you? Who cares if God is for you? Paul's taking Romans 8, 28, and he's just pressing it down into their hearts. That there is nothing that's going to come into their life that God is not turning to actually accomplish the very plans he has for your life. God's plan for your life is invincible. No person, no evil, no tragedy, no sin done by you or against you can block God's plan for you. You can personalize it for me. That, that is true. There, there is no human being who has the power to ruin your life. Can we just like thank the Lord for that? There is no human being. Your boss can't do it. Your spouse can't do it. Your friend can't do it. A human being does not have the power to, here's why. Because God is for you. There is no evil, and there's a lot of evil, right? But there is no evil out there that can ruin your life. You, you just uh, put in the blank the evil that has come into your life. And because you live in a fallen world, we've all got the story. We've all got something in the blank. There is no evil that can ruin your life. Here's why. Because God is for you. Because God is for you. There is no tragedy that can ruin your life. 
And I know the stories in this room. There's tragedies everywhere in this room, but no tragedy can ruin our life. That, that moment of loss cannot ruin your life. That cancer cannot ruin your life. That car wreck, that unexpected news, that you just fill in the blank, the tragedy that you've endured. Tragedy, no tragedy can ruin your life. And here's why. Because God is for you. That, that, that's why. Not even sin can ruin your life. Like, you don't have the capacity to sin in a way that will ruin your life. Other people don't have a capacity to sin in a way that will ruin your life. The abuse done to you, the abuse done by you, you just fill in the blank of the sin done by you, against you. It cannot ruin your life. And here's why. If you are in Christ, this promise is true of you. God is for you. That, that's why, because he's for you. I mean, I, I hope that there's some of us that can just breathe a deep sigh of relief and just enjoy again this promise. God's plan for your life is invincible. If you need a proof of it, uh, just take Joe as an example. Uh, Joe was sold into slavery by his brothers. Uh, once he got there, uh, he was falsely accused by a woman of sexual crimes that he did not commit, and he spent a decade of his life in prison. A decade, just withering away in prison. But that sin done to him could not ruin God's plan for him, because God's plan was invincible. God actually took all of that sin done to him and used it to get Joseph to the very place where God could accomplish his plans in Joseph's life. I just, can we just be freshly amazed at this again today? My, God's saying, my, this is an absurd promise. My plan for your life is invincible. No one, no thing can block or ruin or stop God's plans for your life. Just enjoy the freedom of that. Here's another promise. You, friend, if you're in Christ, will have everything you need. Everything you need. Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see the logic of the text? The logic is, if the first half is true, the second half has to be true. Uh, because if God did uh, the, the huge thing, the great thing of giving his son, then of course God would do like the, the small things of like giving us everything we need. Right? That, that's the logic of the text. Paul's saying, if God the Father would give you the priceless thing, Jesus, couldn't you count on him to give you everything else you need in life? That's Paul's logic. Now, I want you just to notice in that verse, the last two words, graciously give us all things. Now the question is, what in the world does all things mean? I mean, when, when God says he's going to give us all things, what does he mean by all things? Does that mean everything we ask? No. Uh, does that mean a safe, comfortable life? No. Uh, does that mean that if we ask for a million dollars today, we're going to get a million dollars tomorrow? No. Uh, does that mean that we'll always be healthy if we just ask for it? Uh, no. Uh, does that mean that we're never going to have a problem in our life? No, it doesn't. So, so what does it mean? Uh, listen to J.I. Packer describe this. He says, the meaning of he will give us all things can be put like this. One day we shall see 
that nothing, literally nothing, which could have increased our eternal happiness has been denied us. That nothing, literally nothing, which could increase our internal happiness has been denied us. Let me say it positively. God is promising to give you everything you need in your life to enjoy Jesus today and forever. Everything. So here's what we know. If it's not in our life right now, we don't need it to enjoy Jesus today or forever. He is, give, he is promising. I, this is the big heart of your God. He is looking at you and saying, if you're in Christ, listen, I am going to give you everything. Not just some things, most things. I'm going to give you everything you need to enjoy Jesus right now and forever. That, that's an amazing promise, isn't it? Think how much freer your life would be if you could just believe that right there. God is going to do that for me. Think, think, how, uh, uh, think how the anxiety in your life would begin to, to, to flow away, to just drift out of your life. If we really believe God is going to give me everything, this is the big heart of your God. It's a promise. It's too good to be true. God's saying, I will give you everything you need. Everything. How about this promise? Uh, God looking at his people and saying, I will satisfy you. I will satisfy you. We are all a joy-motivated people. Uh, God has planted a deep ache in your heart. And that ache deep down in your heart uh, animates our life. It, it moves us in life. We are all making decisions day in, day out based on well, what do we think is going to deliver the most joy and happiness in my life? Right? We're all doing this all the time. We are a joy-motivated people. And the number one, one of the number one sort of central questions of our life is this one. Will I look to Jesus for that joy or to other places for that joy? That's one way to talk about the central question of your life. Will Jesus be the place you look to to quench your thirst? Or are you going to try other places? And what we see over and over in the scriptures is that all those other places leave you wanting. That every other place you're going to drink is going to leave you thirstier. So Jesus comes to us in John 6 and says, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is God looking at you and saying, I am the one who will satisfy you. I am the one who will quench that deep thirst. I am the one that can do that. I am the one who can, who can um, step into that hunger in your heart and satisfy it. I am the bread of life. Can I tell you what is not the bread of life? Pornography is not the bread of life. We treat it like it is. It just leaves you thirstier. The next purchase in your life is not the bread of life. It's going to have about three seconds of like amazing satisfaction. And then it's over, right? The next purchase is not going to do it for you. Uh, what you're going to find in your pantry is not the bread of life. We oftentimes eat like it is though, but it's not. What the scriptures are saying, promising, is that the bread of life, the one and only one who can satisfy the deep aches of your heart, it's Jesus. Amen? Amen? 
that that is the bread of life. And I just wonder if you see Jesus like this. So many people think of God as an object to be studied and analyzed and theologized rather than he is a person to be enjoyed. Right? This is Jesus. He wants to satisfy the deepest aches and thirst and hungers in your heart. That's what he promises to be for his people. I will satisfy, he says. Hey, let me just give you one more. Hey, here's another promise. I hope will just be encouragement for you this morning. God promises that every tear will turn into eternal joy. If you knew every story of suffering in this room it would take your breath away. Loss, betrayal, wayward children, sickness and chronic pain, just heartbreak after heartbreak. I mean, it, it would literally take your breath away if you just knew the depth of human suffering in this room. And this promise, it promise is meant to encourage every sufferer. Paul articulates the promise in 2 Corinthians 4. In verse 16, he says, don't lose heart. And how do we not lose heart in our suffering? How do we not do that? How do we not give up? How do we not lose heart? He says, here's how. Because it's this promise right here. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's a crazy promise. Paul's saying, here's what your suffering is doing. This light momentary affliction, it's preparing. Do you see that in that text? It's, it's preparing. It's doing something. It's, it's preparing things. Paul's saying, listen, there is no such thing as purposeless pain. Every time pain and suffering and heartache enter into your life, God is doing something with that very pain. With every one of those tears, God, God is doing something with them, Paul's saying. And here's what he's doing. He is preparing. What, what's he preparing? He's using those tears, that pain, that suffering to prepare an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That, that's Paul's way of saying, hey, one day every one of those tears are going to turn into joy that is going to blow your mind. Friend, if you are suffering today and just in it, I mean, it was a miracle that you just made it. To, I mean, you, you came in limping this way. It just, life hurts. Look at me. God is going to turn all of those tears into eternal joy for you. There is going to be a day where you say, along with the psalmist in Psalm 31, you have turned my mourning into dancing. That, that day is coming for you, friend. So I, I just want us to get a sampling of this. God has made absurd promises, right? Promises that are too good to be true. And these promises form the bedrock of the Christian life. They are what keep Christians sane in an insane world. These very promises, just like this. Now we're back to our central question. We're almost done for the morning. We're back to our central question. Here's the question. Are these promises a Ponzi scheme? Is there ever a moment when we can trust a promise that is too good to be true? Now we're to Genesis 21. I just want you to see what happens in these two verses. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah, 90 years old. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham, a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham 100, Sarah 90, and they have a baby. 
They have a baby. I mean, you're supposed to almost laugh when you get here. They, it happened. They had a baby. It, 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 Isaac is here. Now notice what this text is emphasizing. Verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah. How? As he had promised. Verse 1. And the Lord did to Sarah what? As he had promised. Verse 2. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which what? God had spoken to him. This text is all trying to convince us of this. It's not only that God makes promises, but God keeps his promises. Amen? God keeps his promises. The promise maker is a promise keeper. Can you just say that with me? The promise maker is a promise keeper. That's what this text is trying to convince us of. That yes, God has made absurd, ridiculous, too good to be true promises. And God keeps them. He's that kind of God. Now, why is this text here in the Bible for you? Why are we a few thousand years later reading this text? Here's the reason. God wants to use this text to encourage you to scour the Bible for every promise you can find and then trust it. To find all of these absurd promises that God makes us through the scriptures and then to bank on it, to plant your life on these promises. That's what he wants to do in this text this morning. God is trying to convince you that if God could do, come through, keep this promise to Abraham, there is no promise he has made to you that he cannot keep. I don't care how impossible it is, how absurd it sounds, there is no promise that he will fail you on. Even the absurd promises that are so far beyond human doing, the promise maker is a promise keeper. Can you trust promises that are too good to be true? You can if God makes them. You can if God makes them. Now this puts us in um, an interesting position this morning. Uh, There's really two ways that we can respond today. And, And let me just give you those two ways. Way number one is waiting. Way number two is rejoicing. Those are the two options that we have in this room. Waiting or rejoicing. Some of us right now, we are looking at our life and we are living in the gap between God making the promise and God keeping the promise. Abraham and Sarah lived in that gap for 24 years. That's a long time to be in the waiting room, isn't it? That's a long time to be waiting on God to come through for his promises. And some of us, we find ourselves there in various areas of our life. We are in the waiting room waiting on God to, to keep his promise to us. And if you're there in the waiting room to wait well, it requires patience. You need good community in your life. You need to pray these promises. To do what the the Puritans used to say is, you need to sue God for his promises. That's that's what we do in prayer. We we say to God, God, you told me that you're for me. I, I don't know how me sitting in my life like this, it could be, that could be true. But God, you tell me that that's true. So I am trusting right now for you to do all the things necessary to show that. It's suing God for his promises in prayer. We, we've got to do that if we're in the waiting room. So friend, if that's you and you're in the waiting room, what promise is it that you need to trust this morning? Oh, what promise is it? Now for others, uh, we, we, the call today, the way to respond is by rejoicing. Because here is what's happening in our life. God has made some promises and, and, and we're, we can see like right now in our life that God is answering those things. He's keeping his promises. And for most of us, we're going to be in, in the waiting room, uh, waiting over here and rejoicing because our life is just a, a big mess of all of it, right? 
But, but here's our response. Just like Sarah does in this text, she laughs with God. She rejoices with God. She says, when people hear this, they're going to laugh and rejoice with me. We should be scouring our life for those moments where God has made promises and God has kept those promises in our life. Rejoicing with a heart of gratitude saying, thank you, oh God. Thank you for how you've shown up in my life. Now friends, this story is part of a larger story. And just like Isaac's birth, uh, or just like we're supposed to see Isaac's birth in this text, it's a part of a story. And we're supposed to see through his birth all the way to another's birth. We're supposed to see through Isaac to the birth of Jesus, that one that was long anticipated. Not 24 years, but people waiting thousands of years for God to show his promises to be faithful. And it's in Jesus, that long-awaited one, that we know that every promise is going to be a yes and amen in him, in Christ, for those who are in Christ. So friends, just like Isaac's birth, Jesus' birth is meant to remind us that God's last name is not Ponzi. It is promise keeper. That's his last name. You can trust him, friend. You can trust him today. So would you bow with me? And I want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press down into you the things that would be most helpful this morning. I know some of us are in that waiting room. I know you're there right now. What promise do you need to rehearse this morning, hold on to this morning, throw your life on again this morning? Some of us are waiting and some of us are rejoicing today. We are just getting to look at our life and say, thank you, God. That you really are a promise keeper. And so whether it's waiting or rejoicing, this is a chance for you to pour out your heart to the Lord. So Father, would you come meet with us now? Would you refresh our hearts with the thousands of promises that you make to us and that we can bank on because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus? God, minister to us, and it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen.